talking about. I'm talking about an assessment that is provided um, by the uh, organization Prepare and Enrich, which is a relationship, uh, a company that, that is designed to help uh, people with relationships, marriage, uh, pre-marriage, post-marriage, uh, unique issues and, and situations. And uh, we have access to a couple's checkup assessment through them for the month of October. And if you got my email this week or this past week, then you have everything that you need to know in order to take advantage of that in that email. And if you would like to um, participate with that um, and you didn't get an email, please come and see me before you leave today. And I will be happy to, uh, to get you the information you need. Um, um, but it's for the benefit of, of your marriage or your, uh, your, the person you're engaged with or dating. Um, any, any couples are welcome to take the, the, that assessment, and it'll be valuable to you. Um, the second thing is, is this, this week our women are leaving um, for the uh, women's retreat. So pray for our women. Pray that they'd have a great time. Pray for the men that they leave behind and all the kids. Um, that we will make it to church next weekend with all the clothes and food that is needed. Um, so Somebody do of, Laurel's hair, please. A lot of things to pray for. Hey, here's a little known um, trivia about me. Um, there was one year that Jenny was gone to women's retreat, and I made it to church with the kid without pants on. I didn't notice until we got, we got there. Um, that's a true story. I that's that's a fair question. I I had pants on. <laughs> Thank you for letting me clarify. <laughs> okay. Um, the next thing is uh, Beyond Our Doors. Our Beyond Our Doors ministry is hosting a, uh, a mobile food market here at the church on October 16th, and you can sign up to be a part of that through Church Center. Um, and if you have any questions, you can go and talk to Matt Ward. Um, and that's all I have this morning. Um, so glad you guys are with us. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray, and then we will begin our time of worship. Father, we thank you for the time and the moment that we have here with you. We pray that you would be among us, um, that you would be honored by our worship this morning. And Father, we pray that you would draw us close to you. We desire to be honoring to you and we desire to be more like you. We pray that you would move in our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Father, we thank you for the life that we find in you. We thank you that we have reason to give praise, that we have reason for gratitude. We thank you for um, the life that you call us to now, to grow and to follow you. And so we ask this morning that you would teach us, draw us close to you, make us more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. And we want to dismiss our... Sunshine Kids Club kiddos, K through five. If you are one of our guests, feel free to go with your kiddo and get them checked in and meet the staff, and then you can come back and join us. Early springtime possesses a unique vibrancy all its own. And in my humble opinion, it is bright sunshine that sets the tone for the vibrancy of spring. Now, the air may not be refreshingly cool, but at least it's not the scorching heat of summer. 
bright sunshine for me enriches the, the deep blue of an empty sky. And it brings out the colors, the vibrant colors of a, a delicate butterfly's wings. And bright sunshine in our neck of the woods can uh, make such a glare reflecting off the lake that we've either got to turn our heads or put on sunglasses to endure it. Bright sunshine, for me, brings everything to life in the springtime, especially if it's been a dark and rainy winter. Bright sunshine, we could say, literally gives life. Well, in our church family, the gospel is the bright sunshine. The gospel is the power to change hearts. The gospel burns brightly in our lives. And the gospel energizes the church family as we lovingly respond to Jesus Christ with an obedience to follow him. Our goal as we follow him is to let the gospel be a bright sunshine in our lives. Practically speaking, I would say this about the passage we're going to look at this morning, that the life-changing power of the gospel produces a church family that brings life to the world. The life-changing power of the gospel produces a church family that brings life to the world. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. We started this sermon series last week. We're going to continue it this week and, and look at all of chapter 1. And I'm excited because God's word is a mirror. And as we look at the mirror today, we not only look at it as individuals, but we get to look at it as a church family. Because we're going to look at three components of an energized, vibrant church family. Three components that show up in the body of Christ, in the local expression, at Thessalonica and here in Conroe, when the gospel is shining brightly in our hearts. So I invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. And the first thing I want us to acknowledge is that Paul starts off with thankfulness. He gives thanks for what God is doing. And it's not just a perfunctory, thank you for my new toy. And it's not just a following of the first century form for letters. No, no. This is a, a visceral approach that Paul is taking here. He is responding to the goodness and the graciousness of God in the lives of the people in Thessalonica, specifically the believers at the church in Thessalonica that he was with just a few months prior. So he gives thanks because he's deeply moved by God's work. And this is what he says in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. This whole book is very relational for Paul. 
And so when God brings them to mind, when he is in prayer for them, he is giving thanks for what God has done and is doing in their lives. Deeply moved. He prays for these people he has come to, to love. And as we look at the subject matter of Paul's prayer here in chapter one, we're going to see three components of an energized vibrant church family. And I think there's a progression to them. The first one is, uh, the first thing that we'll look at is this offer of life from God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the first thing we see. And then the, the second thing we see is that there's a growth in the Christ-like life. This faith journey leads us toward becoming Christ-like. And, and so there is a growth that takes place when we disciple one another to Jesus Christ. And the third thing that we see toward the end is that we are able, having received the life of Christ, having been discipled to Jesus and becoming more like him, we are able to bring life to the world around us. Because again, the life-changing power of the gospel produces a church family that brings life to the world. So let's look at the first collection of verses here. The church family is transformed to serve the living God, and that's what we see takes place in an individual's life and in a corporate life of a church family when we turn to God and he transforms us from the inside out. I've got a collection of verses and I'll try to explain why. We're not even going to take them in order, the ones that are on the, the uh, screen up there. But these components come together to talk about the life in Christ that is offered to all, to everyone in the world, and specifically takes root in those who receive Christ. If the church family is going to change the world, then each individual must be changed. And that's where the gospel comes into play here. When the gospel invades a life, it takes us from a self-centered outlook, from a lost outlook, from an outlook that's only able to sin, to a, an attitude of serving God, to a perspective and a desire of honoring God and bringing him glory. God transformed these people from worshiping idols, which was futile, to worshiping Jesus Christ, which was a worship full of vitality. I want to read verse 9 to start here because it talks about their conversion. In verse 9, Paul says this, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. There's a transformation that took place when they received Jesus Christ. And note the order there. They turned to God. They placed their faith in Christ. And that caused them to turn from idols. That caused them or gave them the power to leave that life behind. They expressed faith in Christ and then the idols were forsaken. This verse gives us a summary which takes place in, in the life of each person, each of us that have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. 
Paul's reference to the living God here is not just that God is alive, but that he is active. And that's the whole point of the gospel and the power of the gospel being active in our lives because God is active and the Holy Spirit is behind the power of the gospel in our lives. Only the living God is what Paul is making clear here to a first century audience that is just wrapped up in all kinds of religious cults. Only a living God can make transformation from the inside out. Only a living God can change our viewpoint and our longings and our devotions from the idols around us to worshiping Jesus Christ. God is actively involved, making beauty out of ashes. He is actively involved, turning raging anger in people to gentle gentleness and kindness. He is actively involved for those who trust Christ in turning words of cursing and tearing down others to words of blessing and building up others. God is actively involved in the lives around us and in our lives as we trust him and follow him. When we turn from self-centered living to serving others, we have evidence that we've been changed from the inside out. God is in the business of gathering imperfect people and starting them down the road toward Christ-likeness. Our vision at Conroe Bible Church is that we would see everyone transformed by the love of Jesus Christ. We can't do that on our own as much as we might have expressions of kindness and love for others. But Jesus Christ can do that. And we can point people to him by sharing his love and by sharing the gospel with others, as we'll see toward the end of this passage. But we want to be a people that honor him and serve him because we've been transformed. How does it take place? Well, Paul informs us of two things that happen in this transformation of coming to Christ. And in for, for these two things, we're going to go back to verses 4 and 5. Let me read those. He says, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Transformation happens when God initiates a relationship with us. We're told here that God chose us in verse 4. We know that Christ died for us when we were yet sinners. We know that all who place their faith in Christ are forgiven of their sin and receive the free gift of eternal life. We know that God has initiated all of this and his motivation is his love for us. It has nothing to do with how good or great we think we are as an individual or as a church family. God initiated all of this because of his love for us. Now, God's choice in verse 4 raises the question of God's sovereignty and, and man's free will. And I see both in Scripture 
First one's called election. We often refer to it that way, the theological term. And both elements are there, that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world, and that man is fully accountable and responsible for his choices and responsible to place his faith in Jesus Christ. And I am comfortable with what seems like a paradox or what I would call just simply a mystery because I realize that with an infinite God whose ways are not my ways, there are things that I'm not going to understand fully and completely on this earth. As Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher said, when he was asked how he could reconcile God's sovereignty and man's free will, he said, I never try to reconcile friends. We can live with that tension. But the main thing to get here is that, that God is motivated by his love. And that has started even before we came to Christ. The second thing that happens here that we see is that transformation happens when the gospel changes the heart of man through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul didn't win converts with clever speech and, and, and manipulative words, even though he was a, a great orator and, and a trained speaker. No, he simply presented the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those words took effect when the hearer received them and believed them and trusted in the Savior. The, the Holy Spirit caused those words to have power to change a life as this person turned to Jesus Christ and gave their faith or placed their faith in Christ. Transformation happens when the gospel changes the heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. We see that here, that the gospel came in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We read throughout scripture that the Father draws us to himself and that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so if you ever question whether you're elect or not, you just have to realize that, that if you've had any desire to get to know this God-man Jesus, to understand his promises, to be curious about him, that is God drawing you to himself. When you begin to realize that you're a sinner and you've got a messed up life that you can't crawl out of, that is the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life. And when you place your faith in the simple gospel of Jesus Christ, when you simply believe that Jesus died on the, sin, on the cross for your sins in your place, then he forgives you of your sins. He enters your life to lead you. And he gives you the free gift of eternal life. That is very powerful. Because scripture tells us that we are born dead in trespasses and sin. And that our only worth is worthy of the wrath of God, not of going to heaven on our own merit. Well, in verse 3, we get a glimpse of how the person should look when the gospel begins to burn brightly, when these changes have taken place through the power of the Holy Spirit. We get three virtues that characterize the life of those who follow Jesus, and they were seen in this church family at Thessalonica. Three virtues that are given to us in verse 3 by Paul. This is what he says as he's giving thanks and prayer. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith 
and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of God, our Father. Thessalonian believers were characterized by faith, love, and hope. They had an active faith expressing their trust in Jesus Christ. They had an act of faith that produced works in their life that served in the strength of Jesus Christ and brought honor and glory to him. They labored to the point of exhaustion, motivated by love, and they were able to do that because the Holy Spirit, we are told, pours the love of God into our hearts. Not to be held on to and embraced strictly for ourselves, but to let that flow out to others. They had a labor of love. Two great virtues already. And then he talks about their enduring hope, that they have this confident and certain expectation in Jesus Christ, that he will return, that their future is defined for them, and that it is secure in Jesus Christ. They have God's certain promise, knowing that he would deliver them from wrath in the future. The hope of the believer is further defined by the approach of the believers in Thessalonica. They reveal a hope that is not a passive resignation. It's not a hope it doesn't rain today or a hope against hope. No, this is a certain expectation, a confidence that God will keep his promises. And this is what we see about their hope. Previously, it's described in verse 3 as enduring hope or a steadfast hope. But in verse 10, we see that it is focused on the person of Jesus Christ. And that is what gives it a vibrancy, a life. This is what Paul wrote. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. We see him here as God the Son. We see him here as Jesus in his humanity. The God-man who died on the cross for our sins was buried and rose again. And we see him as our deliverer who will return and deliver us from the wrath to come. Our hope looks forward to the day of his return, not because it's an event that we're waiting to see, because of the person of Jesus Christ, we long to see him face to face. We long to be in his presence for all eternity. And that's what Paul is saying here. And he uses a compound word here for the word wait. It's a word that if we just transliterated it to, to English, it would be wait up. And I love that, that sense of expectancy that it brings to the, to the passage here that these believers in Thessalonica, they are active in their faith. They are trusting God moment by moment. They are relying on him for protection and provision. They are also exhaustively loving on those around them, seeking their best in whatever way possible at their own time and expense sacrificially but they are also a people that are waiting up they have an expectancy of the return of Jesus Christ when all things will be made right and we shall see him as he is and we shall be like him that's a glorious future to hold on to you know a lot of people today wait up for their 
favorite movie. If a, if a movie is going to come out and there's a new release at midnight, many people, thousands will go to the theater and stand in line for it. When our kids were young, we would let them wait up past bedtime if there was some unique thing happening in the night sky. Perhaps the moon was going to be a little bit different that night. Perhaps a better example is the, the, the young child that is allowed to wait up for a parent that is returning home. It's been gone for more than a day. There's an expectancy. There's a joy. There's an expectation that is confident that that parent will return. And it will be great joy to be reunited with them. That is what the Thessalonian believers are modeling for us. That's their pattern in following Jesus Christ. They are waiting up. They have a constant expectancy of the return of Jesus Christ. Paul has caused us to look at these characteristics as a church family. And he's given us the story of their conversion and how God transformed them through the power of the Holy Spirit. All of it motivated by God's love and the, and the, the, thing, the three virtues that, that shine brightly in a life and in a corporate church family's life of faith, love, and hope when the gospel is burning brightly in our hearts. And next, he gives us the component of relational discipleship. What happens when the gospel takes root in a church family? The church family is transformed through relational discipleship. Followers of Jesus Christ are meant to collide with one another. We are meant to get involved in each other's business. We are meant to bring grace to messiness and to bring truth to waywardness. We are meant to do life together, to share life. And so we are called by Jesus Christ to point one another to Jesus. We call that discipleship. I prefer to call it relational discipleship because that's what takes place between people. It's not a program that we set out to do, although many of us have been through discipleship programs. And it's not a checklist, though many of us have, have had checklists. It is a process of becoming more like Jesus Christ and able to do that in community, whether that's one-on-one -on -one or in a small group or in a mid-sized community like an ABF. Whatever it is, it's the opportunity to bring grace and truth, to bring God's word to bear on one another's life. We need relational discipleship. And our goal is not simply to get together to learn God's word. Our goal on a Sunday morning when we make and build relationships is not simply to have somebody that's going to smile at us in the hallway and say, hey, how you doing? It's somebody that we can go deeper with, that we can learn from, that we can gain a, a fresh understanding of God's grace from, that we can be discipled to Jesus by. Now, we've got to be careful whom we follow when it comes to being discipled to Jesus Christ. Paul um, was discipled by Jesus, we're told in Galatians 1. He was discipled by Barnabas in ministry. 
I read a story of a marathon this last weekend in the Quad Cities that uh, runs along the Mississippi River and has some beautiful countryside of Iowa and, and Illinois. And um, it was won for the first time in 20 years by a U.S. runner, Tyler Pence, cross-country coach at the University of Illinois. He won because there were two Kenyans that were running at near record pace that followed a volunteer bicyclist off the wrong route. They followed the wrong person. They had gone over the route with the race organizers, both by map and by in person earlier that week, which they do with the elite runners. But for whatever reason, they got confused and followed a volunteer bicyclist, bicyclist off the wrong, wrong way. We want to be careful in whom we follow. So we don't want to look just for the celebrities. We don't want to look just for those who are charismatic in personality. But we want to look for people that are following Jesus. People that are real. People that are genuine. People that have a trajectory of, of bringing God's word to bear on their life. And seeking to know Jesus and willing to practice some spiritual disciplines and, and honest enough when they mess up and when they sin to confess their sin and to be restored to fellowship with Jesus Christ. These are the people that we want to look toward. As I said, Paul was discipled by Jesus and Barnabas showed him how to do things in ministry. And then Paul, of course, took Timothy under his wing on this second missionary journey and began to disciple him and train him to be a missionary and a church planter. One mark of a healthy, vibrant, energized church is that the church family members are discipling one another to Jesus, are reaching out and willing to say with Paul, as he writes in 1 Corinthians 11, Follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. Now, that's not an arrogant statement from a person that is genuine in following Jesus Christ. That's a statement of saying, hey, come stumble along with me. Come crawl toward the light with me as I get to know Jesus and follow him. That's the mentality we want to have as we disciple one another to Jesus Christ relationally. Paul points out it's a pattern for everyone, not just the apostles, because what he is going to say here, and we're going to see it in verses 6 and 7, is that he is praising them and he is thanking God that they are imitating one another as they imitate Jesus Christ. This is what Paul wrote, verses 6 and 7. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. That's the whole point, right? Having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. 
our, our stated mission statement at, at Conroe Bible Church is that we would engage others with the love of Christ, that we would equip one another through relational discipleship, disciple making, and that we would empower one another to serve Jesus Christ. Bottom line, we want to make disciples. And that doesn't happen just because we have some staff members that are geared that way or just because we have some strong ministry leaders in different capacities and different ministries and, and programs that are geared that way. That happens when all of us begin to take that on. When all of us have the desire to teach people to observe what Christ has commanded us. That's how Jesus put it in Matthew 28. We want to follow that pattern of following Jesus Christ. Discipleship is best asked or, or best done through asking questions. And so it requires a bit of humility, a, a desire to be teachable. I think discipleship happens best with questions because then we address areas that are of essence to our own lives. And we get to talk that through with someone, process it over God's word, go together in prayer. Discipleship is produced well through asking questions. One of our core values is faithful engagement. And that has to do with our own walk with Jesus, but it also has to do in how we help others walk to Jesus. And I love how uh, it was put to paper that we would begin to find full submission to Jesus Christ in our lives. That's what we want. Now, none of us is perfect and none of us does that well, but that's the trajectory we want to be on. We want to be a people who are beginning to live in full submission to Jesus Christ and experiencing his grace and his truth and his power through the Holy Spirit as we engage in following him. So if you want to be like Paul with Barnabas, seek out people that aren't as far along on your journey and offer to sit with them and process something that you've gone through in their lives currently. Or if you want to be like Paul with Timothy or Timothy with Paul, seek out someone that has walked with Jesus longer than you have, someone who's experienced more, someone who has learned to submit their lives to Jesus Christ in different ways. Have a curiosity about getting to know Jesus and about seeing his word applied in your life. That, be, that might be one of the greatest characteristics of a follower of Jesus is a curiosity, a desire to have a fresh understanding of his grace, to get to know him more. I learned a great deal just a couple of weeks ago. A friend and I were discussing obedience, and he threw out the phrase, you know, you can be thoughtlessly compliant or thoughtfully obedient. And he took the conversation from just simply knowing what to do and doing it, but to doing it out of love for Jesus Christ, doing it wholeheartedly. That's what comes up in our conversations as we discuss life in Christ together.
Relational discipleship is simply being intentional in our relationships to point each other to Christ. We can offer one another wisdom from God's word. We can offer encouragement. We can offer admonishment when it is needed and, and even correction and how to get back on the path. Paul revealed that the Thessalonians followed God, followed Jesus with great determination. And we know that because they did all of this in the midst of great tribulation and they had the joy of the Holy Spirit. They did this in the midst of tribulation. They had seen and they had, they had seen Paul run out of town, Paul, Silas and Timothy. But they had also heard and, and talked to Paul about his uh, experience just in Philippi, right before he came to Thessalonica, he was beaten with rods and he was thrown in prison because he was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would suffer the same persecution. They would suffer the same being ostracized in their own community when they spoke about Jesus Christ. And they did this. And in their obedience, the Lord Jesus increased their joy through the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. That's incredible to me. Suffering and joy go together in the Christian life. The Christian life is not comfortable. Now, we don't face the heavy-duty persecution that they faced in Thessalonica, at least not yet. But ours is more subtle. We may get passed over for some promotion, or we may get left out of some group of friends because... We want to follow Jesus Christ and engage with him. But we do suffer in other ways, suffer difficulties, and we can still experience the joy of Christ through that. We've had, we've had church family members that have lost dear family members, parents, just here in the last week and in the last two months. We have people that are working through addictions and disorders. We have people that are working through physical issues and mental emotional issues. That's normal life in a fallen world. But we don't want anybody going alone. We want to be reaching out to one another. We want to be sharing the love of Jesus Christ with one another. We want to be pressing into one another's lives with our presence to listen, to talk, to love, to serve. That's what took place in Thessalonica. We need each other just as they needed each other. And Paul says in verse 7, that because of their relational discipleship and their growth toward Christ-likeness, and because of their joy in suffering, that they now became a pattern. They provided a pattern for two large geographical regions around Thessalonica. They engaged in relational discipleship, and they set the standard for reaching others. Paul said, you're an example to the believers in Macedonia. That word example is a, a, a word picture of a, a hammer hitting a, a piece of soft clay and leaving an impression there. He says, this is the impression you have made, that the gospel shines brightly. You're characterized by faith, love, and hope. 
and you're pointing each other to Jesus, and that is having an effect as the gospel goes out to the areas around you. And that's the third component of a healthy, energized, vibrant church family that we see. In verse 8, the church family, what happens when the gospel takes root? The church family brings life by bearing witness to the gospel. We want to have a healthy reputation in our own community. But we don't want a reputation for numbers of people and, and finances and, and programs. We want a reputation as those who follow Jesus, as those who are becoming more like him, as those who are bringing life to our community because of his action in our hearts and in our lives. We are willing to serve him and love others. Paul praises their work. He's talked about the pattern, the example they've become. And now he says, basically, everybody knows you guys. In verse 8, he says this, For the word of the Lord is sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. First off, the Thessalonians burned brightly with the gospel right where they were. But they were, they, they were in a busy harbor, a seaport. They were on the Ignatian Way, as we looked at last week. Strategically, God had them right where he wanted them. Their sphere of influence could have been just their own neighborhood. But with all the travel and the cross-pollination of cultures moving through Thessalonica, people would hear the gospel and take that. And then for those that traveled, they took it down to Greece, over to Asia, up to Europe, over to Rome. Paul says, your work of proclaiming the gospel sounded forth. Sounded forth is a big way of saying echo. That's what the word literally is in the Greek, that you echoed the gospel, that it reverberated from your life that you verbally proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. That's our calling. But not only did they bring the gospel of Jesus Christ verbally, they brought the gospel of Jesus Christ through their lives. Their faith sounded forth, not just verbally, but practically through their attitudes, through their actions, through the way they approached people. And even as I say that, I, I fall under tremendous conviction. I, I just think of all the times that just a, during a given day, I can run in and out of a convenience store and, and just totally ignore all the people there just because I want to get in and out and be efficient. I don't need to talk about people cutting me off on the highway because they just raised a checkered flag. Paul talks about their faith sounding forth because he's talking about a life changed by Christ and a life centered on the gospel. And that's what he wants to see in their lives continue. That's what God is saying to us today. This is what I want from you. I want you to echo the gospel, whether it's verbally or through your lifestyle. Never forget the power of life change in your own life when it comes to reaching our culture for Christ. We've got to think about whom we represent when we're on social media, when we're talking to colleagues, when we're at work or school or in the neighborhood. 
Because everything we do and say, our attitudes, our approach, everything reflects on Jesus Christ. And it can point to Jesus or it can draw people away from Jesus. Uh, I like what John Ortberg observed about the culture wars. He says the first casualty in the culture wars is not truth, but love. We've got to contend for biblical values and contend for truth and proclaim the truth. But it's no good if we don't live the truth, if we don't love our neighbor, and if we don't love those in our church family. We are called to reach others with our lives, which have been altered by the gospel. You know that I follow Toby Mac's little posters on Instagram, and there's another one that I really like that uh, showed up just this week. Our Christian lifestyle speaks much louder than our Christian vocabulary. You cannot argue someone into the kingdom. And it's very hard to tell them about the love of God when you're mean to them. It's very hard to show them a gospel of life change when I am arrogant with someone. We want a lifestyle that reflects the gospel burning brightly in our lives as an individual and a church family. And our relationships within the church family are the final apologetic to the world that God does infuse us with his love. We want to be people that bring the gospel through the word and through lifestyle. Well, as I reflected on the passage this week, I recognized three components of this life that is, this, this church life, church family, that is energized and vibrant because it's been changed by the gospel. And it has to do with receiving the offer of Jesus Christ, placing our faith in Christ, and then being changed by him and letting that gospel continue to burn until we begin to live out the virtues of faith and love and hope. And then being able to point each other to Christ and growing in the life of Christ in his grace and knowledge. And then finally, bringing life to the world. We don't want to just bring a, a message and run away. We want to bring them life. We want to point them to Jesus Christ and disciple them with his grace and truth. So we may, may we be a people that are not only challenged by God's word, but are changed by the gospel and willing to live that out in our community this week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for a day in which we can gather freely and worship you and know you. Thank you for insight in how to follow you and live. And thank you for powerful words about what the gospel does in our lives when we submit to you. And so we ask for the grace to continue to turn towards you, to follow you, to rely on you, to depend upon you, to be cleansed by you, to be changed by you from the inside out. Lord, we want to live and exist and enjoy this life that is so vibrant that Paul has given us as he spoke about the church in Thessalonica. And so we ask that you would empower us through the Holy Spirit this week. In Christ's name we pray, amen.
Would you stand with us?
Majestic is your name in all the earth. Oh Lord, our Lord, may we see your kingdom come. Father, may your will be done in all the earth. You guys sound great. Thank you for being here to, uh, this morning. Have a great week.